You're listening to the Southwide Baptist Church Podcast with Pastor Jeremy Lewis. At Southwide Baptist Church, our mission is to boldly proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ and thereby lead people to worship God authentically, connect in biblical community, grow in Christian maturity, and multiply disciples and churches both locally and globally. For more information about our church, please visit www.southwidebaptist.com. Now let's join Pastor Jeremy for today's message. The Colorado River actually starts in the Rocky Mountains of Colorado, and until the construction of the Hoover and Glen Canyon dams, it flowed continuously into Mexico and to the Gulf of California. A century ago, the Colorado River Delta was navigable by large boats. Today, upstream diversions and dams in both the countries of America and Mexico control the Colorado River's flow and little to no water is released into the channel downstream of the Morales Dam which straddles the U.S.-Mexico border. The Colorado River Delta was once a thriving wetland ecosystem where water and sediment delivered from the Colorado River watershed reached the Gulf of California. Due to the lack of persistent flowing water, much of Colorado, the Colorado River Delta contains dried-out wetlands and degraded riverbanks. The Delta provides critical Habitat for wildlife and migrating birds, including endangered southwestern willow flycatcher. For a short time, from March the 23rd, 2014 to May 18th, 2014, 106,000 acre feet of water was released into this delta. That's the equivalent of about 52,000 Olympic swimming pools. The delta is where the Colorado River comes to die, as was mentioned in the video. It's a hundred miles of nothing. The man in the video says, I know how dry it really is. They knew the water was coming. They were camped out and waiting. It was one of the most joyful scenes I have ever seen. He said we would see life within minutes of water creeping across the sand. The top was already dry again. The pulse was moving down the delta. And as it moved through, he said it was like it had never happened. In five years, his fear was people are going to forget just how great it really was. And I have a question. What if we heard this? Not as a description of the Colorado River Delta, but rather of the church in America. We were living in a barren place where everything is spiritually dead, miles upon miles of nothing, and we experienced it. We saw it, and we knew how dry it really was. We knew that water was coming, and we camped out, and we waited on it to come. We knew it was coming, and when it arrived, it was one of the most joyful scenes we had ever experienced. We would see spiritual life within minutes of the water creeping into this spiritual wasteland. 
But after a short season, the top was almost dry again and the water that moved throughout the land was gone. And behind it, behind it was spiritual barrenness once again. In a short time, we, the American church, forgot how great it really was. John chapter 20 and verse 31 says, These things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. And so if you found your place, let me invite you to stand with me in honor of the reading of God's Word. As we begin in chapter 7 together in verse 37, the Bible says, On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. When they heard these words, some of the people said, this really is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, why did you not bring him? The officers answered, no one ever spoke like this man. The Pharisees answered them, have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd does not know the law is accursed. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before and who was one of them, said to them, Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? They replied, Are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. Lord Jesus, we come before you today to hear from your word. And Lord, I fear and, and I'm concerned that much of the church in our day and time has lost sight of what it means to be a spring of living water. We've grown discouraged and burdened. And God, I ask this morning that you, by your spirit, through the truth of your word, that you would lift our burden, that you would encourage our hearts and that you, by your Spirit, would compel us out into the world to be your spring of living water. That we would proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is hope and life to all men. And that we would believe to the very core of who we are, convicted, with conviction. God, that we would proclaim this gospel to a lost and dying world. And that you would be glorified in it. Lord, I pray that even as your word is preached this morning, if there is one among us who does not know Jesus as Lord and Savior of their life, that this would be the day of salvation. 
And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, thank you. You can be seated. We'll tie that Delta River back in in a moment. But the scene in our text this morning, as you already know, is the Festival of Tabernacles. And so if you have been here with us for the last several weeks, we have spent a great time, a great deal of time talking about this uh, this festival among the Jews, this festival of tabernacles or of booths, it was one of the most significant spiritual festivals in Israel in this day. It brought the festival year, the calendar year, to a close, if you will. It, it was the thanksgiving, in essence, of Israel It's a great celebration of all that God had done in the history of the nation and preserving them and bringing them through that 40 years of wandering in the wilderness and through all of their years of history, God had preserved this people and this festival was a great celebration of those things, no doubt compounding all of God's faithfulness to them throughout the years. In particular, God had provided both food and water to them in the wilderness. You'll remember the story of the manna from heaven and the water that flowed out of the rock. And multiple times God provides water in the wilderness and brings them to this land flowing with milk and honey. And here they are celebrating the years of God's faithfulness to them. But the irony, the irony of the moment was that despite their immediate celebration of these truths and their confession that this is who our God is. They were in perhaps more of a spiritual wasteland than they had ever been before in the history of the nation. They had reduced what was a vibrant walk with God to a mere religious shell that was intended to bring about human praise. The sacrifices continued, all of the activity in the temple continued, all of the laws were being maintained, and yet these were only a handful of people in the nation who truly knew God. It was a spiritual wasteland. They, like the people of the Colorado River Delta, had been camped out and waiting on the living water to come. For centuries, they waited for the Messiah. And we know that, that this is their anticipation even in this text because of what John tells us in verse 40. They hear these words, the words that Jesus is teaching, and some of the people said, this is really the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. They're pointing not just to any prophet or any Christ, and we know that because later... They're challenged on their statement in that Jesus is from Galilee. He can't be from Bethlehem. He can't be the root of David. This is the one we are waiting on. And yet the crowd says, no, this is the prophet and the Christ, the Messiah, the one who is promised. In other words, all of our camping out and waiting is over and Jesus is here. This is the first half of the crowd who was right This is not only the most joyful day of their lives, this is the most joyful day of human history because all of the things that they were waiting for, all of the promises of God were coming true in this very moment. And Jesus would bring long-awaited spiritual life into a total spiritual wasteland. 
A dry and thirsty land that was without God and without hope. It was barren. Well, we'll return to this dispute between the two groups in just a few moments. But you need to understand a little bit of background here about what's going on in this moment and what Jesus says here in our text in verse 37 and following. This is the last day, John tells us, of this great festival, this great feast. And on each of the last seven days, they celebrated what was a water-pouring ceremony. The ceremony was used to remember the water that God had provided in the wilderness. But on each of these seven days, priests would go to the pool of Siloam and they would carry with them a golden pitcher full of water all the way to the temple. Each of them carrying these pitchers and they would gather all around the altar along with the high priest. As the priest would approach the temple, they would come to the Water gate, as it's been called, and the shofar was blown. And then the psalms of praise and thanksgiving were sung. It was a memory of what God had done through all of His provision in Israel. As the ceremony developed, they would add to it prayers for rain, much like Elijah prayed. And they would pray for rain because this time of year their cisterns would be nearly empty. And they recognized that if they were to receive life-giving water... It would only be provided by God. And so they prayed. And and all of this was done in remembrance of the provision of God in the wilderness. Well, on the final day of the ceremony, when all of that had been done, the, the, the religious routine was over. As if to say, we've done all that is required. Jesus rises in the quietness of this reflective moment in the temple. And John tells us that he cried out as if to counter everything that they had just participated in. And he says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. And whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. There's the offer again, as if everything they had done in those moments left them completely empty, as if it had been insufficient. They had not yet received the offer of living water. They were still spiritually dry and empty and dead and thirsty. Jesus assumes that they know it. Because that's the offer here. If you still sense your thirst, Jesus says, if after all of that, you are still thirsty and you know it, then you should come to me and drink because I offer living water. And here Jesus references the scripture. He says, as the scripture has said, and then he quotes the words out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. That's the statement. You should underline that in your Bible. This is the heart of this text. When Jesus says, out of the heart, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. This is, this is the truth on which the entire text hangs. It's the whole point that he's getting to when he says, as the scripture has said. Now, we don't know exactly what that is referencing because it's not a direct quote. It's kind of unclear. Maybe Jesus was referencing one thing or another, but As you listen to the words of Jesus, many of the water stories of the Old Testament do come in view. 
And maybe perhaps the very first one that we see in the Exodus story. I want you to just kind of hold your place there. You can turn back with me if you have time to find it this morning. Otherwise, just listen along. This is Exodus chapter 17. I want to just bring to your mind this story because it is so incredibly helpful for us to understand what Jesus is saying to us today in John chapter 7. Exodus 17, let me just read it for you. It says that all the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages, according to the commandment of the Lord, and camped at Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. In other words, here they are in a physical barren wasteland. Therefore, the people quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water and the people grumbled against Moses and said, why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried out to the Lord, what shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. And I think the picture there is so perfect for us to understand what's happening They are hearts of stone grumbling against the the God who saved them and ready to hurl stones at the leader, Moses, the leader God had appointed in Moses. So in verse five, and the Lord said to Moses, pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it. The people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel, and he called the name of the place Massah and Meribah, because of the quarreling of the people of Israel, and because they tested the Lord by saying, Is this Is the Lord among us or not? So God, out of their stony hearts and this rock on the ground that could never produce water, Moses strikes the rock and it bursts forth in water. In fact, the psalmist described it in this way, that God opened the rock and water gushed out. It flowed through the desert like a river. And he says, for he remembered his holy promise and Abraham, his servant. This was Israel's experience of the life-giving water. It rushed forth from this rock. Similar to the Colorado River when the water was released. They had received this mighty rushing water from God. But soon after... As they got into the wilderness, they would forget when the water was dried up and they were thirsty again. Now God was not providing just a momentary pulse of water here in John 7, but He's providing living water through His Son. Water that would never end. It was a never-ending supply. And if they came to drink of it, they would never thirst again. But we're not quite at the heart of what John is saying to us here in this passage. Because 
unlike many other places in John, he gives us a very clear commentary on what Jesus meant. So notice it here in verse 39. Chapter 7, verse 39, he says about what Jesus is saying, that he said this about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet, the Spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. Now don't forget when John is writing this gospel, he's not writing it during the, the time of Jesus, so to speak. He's recalling all that Jesus did in their life. He's, he's recounting his walk with Jesus and all that he witnessed. Remember, because at the end, his whole point is that people would read it and believe that Jesus is the Son of God. But he's writing it during the time of the New Testament church. He is experiencing and has experienced the day of Pentecost when the Spirit of God has come. And like a mighty rushing wind, there is this great revival that is sweeping over the course of the New Testament world. In the midst of all of this, what is happening is he sees and experiences a mighty rushing river, the water of life, bringing life even in the very moments that it comes to rush into Jerusalem, bringing life to all who hear. And what he says is this is the very water that Jesus has come to give. What's interesting is he says that it's not just what Jesus brings, but it is coming from all of those who would believe. Notice that he says, now this he said about the Spirit, in verse 39, whom those who believed in him were to receive. And in their receiving of the Spirit, we meet, in our receiving of the Spirit, we meet what Jesus said in verse 37. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. In other words, what John is saying to us is this amazing picture of the coming of the Spirit into a dry and thirsty land. The church then becomes a wellspring of God's life-giving Spirit in a spiritual wasteland. That is who we are. The church becomes a wellspring of God's life-giving Spirit in a spiritual wasteland. This is the main truth that John wants us to hear. This new and living water coming through Christ is now being distributed by the people of God as we proclaim the gospel. And I want you to get this. I want this to just sink in. Because I think that as we think about our culture and our, our country and, and the land that we're living in and our community and even the church at large across America, I, I think that this will resonate with us if we think about it for very long. As you think about politics and our school system and the streets of America, I think we would all agree that in all of those areas we see a deep spiritual dryness. It's a, it's a wasteland. Morally, ethically, spiritually, 
There is very little hope in America right now because most of us are so disillusioned by what is happening around us and even within the church. From the White House to the church house, there is this kind of deflatedness about our world. And I think that we have somehow forgotten that in the midst of this land where there is no fear of God, admittedly, where there is no worship of God here, that there is a small remnant of people who know the Lord. If you are here this morning and you know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, you need to understand that you are part of that remnant. But this is not bad news that there is no water in our land. Because inasmuch as we see the barrenness and the dryness of our land, you need to understand as the people of God that God has supernaturally and graciously placed His Spirit within us as His people. And from our hearts, Jesus says, flows living water. If there's going to be spiritual life in America, it's going to come from the heart and lips of the church. Because we have the greatest news in all of the world. God's Spirit brings life into our land as we preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. Every single time you tell the story of Jesus, every gospel conversation you have, every hope-infused spiritual opportunity that lies before you is another moment that this spring of life is bursting forth into our land. And God opens the rock again and water gushes forth. And I want you to believe this. I want you to get this into the depths of who you are. The church is a wellspring of God's life-giving spirit in a spiritual Wasteland. We have been given the words of eternal life and they must burst forth. The Greek here is so incredibly powerful. It doesn't say out of the heart. That's how we should understand it. But the literal translation is out of his belly springs forth living water. It's coming out of the deepest, the, the, the most central part of who a person is. In the Hebrew, it's a it's an emotional term. Out of their gut. Out of their belly. And, and we know what this means today. When you get something in your gut, you're just, you, you, got it, you got it in you, right? Out of the belly comes this uprising of the truth of God. There's an urgency and a passion about this. They put all of their heart into it. There's conviction whenever this comes. It's not just a a small stream or a steady trickle. This is a gushing forth of life and truth. This is possible today in our lives for two reasons. Why is it that you would have this kind of conviction, this kind of joy when it comes to who Christ is? Well, number one, God has poured out His Spirit on you and you believe the Gospel yourself. God has poured out His Spirit on you and you believe the Gospel yourself. So I referenced Acts chapter 2. Let me just read to you a couple of verses from Acts chapter 2. It says, When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. And it filled the entire house 
where they were sitting. If you go on and you read the rest of Acts chapter 2 and the rest of really the book of Acts, what you'll find is that the same Holy Spirit of God led 5,000 people to trust in Jesus on the very first time the Gospel was preached. After that, thousands upon thousands of people believed. The whole world was utterly changed because of the coming of the Spirit and the preaching of the Gospel and people believing and trusting in Christ. Can I tell you that we are not beyond that today? That it is entirely, it is entirely possible that God would do the same thing in us today. But before it ever happens... Among us, we need to realize that this is exactly what has happened within us. If you're a follower of Jesus this morning, the very moment that Jesus saved you, in a very real sense, this describes that day. When the Spirit of God rushed into your wilderness and brought life into all of your brokenness. The Bible teaches that our God is holy and righteous and that He created this world perfect and without sin. But you and I decided in our own rebellion that we were going to do things our own way. We disobeyed God and because of our disobedience, because of our rebellion against God, the Bible teaches us that that the entire world is broken as a result. And we are all in need of rescue. We have no hope without God intervening and doing something on our behalf. But this is what Christ has done. And if you were here this morning and you've trusted in Jesus as your Savior, know that God in His glory and in His sovereignty has drawn you to salvation, that it is the work of the Spirit to cause you to be born again, and that through the Spirit's working in your life, Your faith in Jesus Christ has made you whole. And Jesus is doing something in you today. He's changing you at every moment of every day into the image of Jesus Christ. You're being transformed day by day. And I just, I want to just urge you to think back to the moment that Jesus saved you. Was it not like this Water of living, this, this living water rushed into your heart and your life and changed everything in a moment. All of it was meaningless and all of it was dead in your world and your life. Jesus rushed into and brought new life. It's because He poured out His Spirit on you and you believe the Gospel. It is a miracle. It is a miracle that any one of us have come to faith in Jesus Christ. But secondly... The second reason why we are a spring of living water is because God has placed His Spirit in us and we are to proclaim the Gospel. God has placed His Spirit in us and we are to proclaim the Gospel. It's exactly what He said He was going to do. This is the promise of God. You remember Ezekiel? Right at the very darkest moment of the history of the people of God, Ezekiel chapter 36, here was the promise that God said. Therefore say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations which you came. Notice what he says he's going to do in verse 23. I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, And he's not just doing it in Israel. 
He's doing it because it's been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned among them. And the result of his making his name holy again, the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. So how's he going to do that? Verse 24, I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols. I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And what is that spirit? And I will remove the heart of stone. There's the stone image again from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. The picture here is that God is going to do a new work in his people, but not through their own doing. He is going to place his spirit within them, within us. The Holy Spirit of God is in us for the purpose of making his glory known and his gospel known among the nations. And Jesus stands up here in in John chapter seven and he cries out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. And he says, whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. This is the living water. So you might ask the question, why then? Why then, if there is so much hope in this water, if this water is something that brings life, why do we see so much spiritual barrenness around us even still? Well, this is a news that divides. It's not a news that everyone is willing to believe. There are those who believe Jesus and there are those who don't. There are some who received Jesus and some who rejected Jesus. There were some in the crowd who wanted to enthrone him, make him king. And there were some who wanted him arrested. And sadly, this is not only true of the New Testament church, but this is true today. There will be those who desire to live and they will find their life in Christ. By the way, he is the only way any of us can find life. He's the way, the truth and the life. But there will be some who would rather live in spiritual wasteland than to come to Jesus. John says in chapter 3 that it's because men love darkness rather than light that they continue to reject Jesus and continue to stay in the darkness. There are some who would rather live in the desert away from God than they would to know God through His Son, Jesus Christ. And so the truth of the Gospel divides. The fact is there may be some sitting in this very room this morning who are on one side of that or the other. There are some of you who sit right here in this room who are ready to believe the gospel. You're ready to trust in Jesus. And can I plead with you in just a few moments when we have a time of invitation, would you leave the place where where you'll be standing? Would you come down this down to this altar, down this aisle and say today, pastor, I want to be saved. Would you would you make today the day that you trust in Jesus and drink from him the living water? 
But there are others who would rather live the rest of your lives in a spiritual wasteland than come to Jesus. And I want to just plead with you not to be that person today. Don't continue to sit in your brokenness and your emptiness and your deadness and reject Christ, especially when this water is offered to you so freely by God's grace and His grace alone. So what I want to do with the few moments that we have light, that have left is just look at these two groups here at the end of John chapter 7. The two groups that emerge. Group one is those who believe upon Christ. It's there in verses 41 and 42. It says, when they heard these words, some of the people said, this is the prophet. This really is the prophet. They'd been trying to figure it out up until this point, no doubt, but now they're convinced. And others say that it's the Christ and they're referring to the promised one of God. They're not just talking about a prophet or one who is a good teacher. They're talking about this man as the Messiah, the the chosen and anointed of God, the only one who could save, the one of all of the Old Testament promises. This is Jesus. And we know, again, because of the rest of the dialogue here, whenever the rest of the group begins to oppose this David that is ultimately from Bethlehem, Jesus is his offspring. And that's what they're arguing. The one who God had chosen to save Israel. They knew exactly who the other side thinks Jesus is. They believe that He's the Savior. We're entering into the Christmas season and Christmas is the celebration of the birth of Jesus. This crowd believes that. They believe that Jesus is the one sent by God into the world to save sinners. We don't know the depth of their belief. We don't know to what extent they would grow in their belief, but by their confession that Jesus is this one, we know at least it is a picture of trusting in Christ. So I would simply ask you today, are you a part of this group? Are you a part of the group that is trusted in Jesus? The second group is found in verses 42 through 52. The contrast in the middle of verse 41 there, but some said, is this the Christ from Galilee? And then they stake their claim. Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David? And they're, they're arguing that this couldn't be the Christ because this man comes from Galilee. And yet they did not know the story, the story of Jesus being born in Bethlehem. And this is the division The division specifically that puts some believing in Christ and some rejecting Him. And that's where the rest of the story leads. Verse 45 and following is a picture of their desire to arrest Him. They're unwilling to confess Him as Lord. Even when they get before the Pharisees, they're they're at least willing to admit that there's something different about this man. He's, He's spoken in a way we've never heard before. But just being mesmerized by Jesus or interested in Jesus is not enough to be saved by Jesus. It is the confession that Jesus is Savior and Lord. It is trusting in Him and surrendering our lives in faith and repentance that is what comes to salvation. But this crowd goes on to 
describe how they do not believe in him. And then this man that we've not seen before since chapter three, Nicodemus in verse 50, he goes out before them and he argues, let's give him a fair trial. By the way, you'll see later on that that seems to become faith in Nicodemus. And yet even in this moment, most of this crowd has rejected him. The group rejects Jesus and they would rather live in their own sinful wasteland than believe upon Christ. So the text leaves us with a question to consider. And it's this. Which group are you in? Which group are you in? If you are in group one, you're already a believer. You've already trusted in Jesus as Savior and Lord, and you've experienced the water of life yourself. It's rushed into your life. It's changed your life. Jesus is everything to you now. Do you remember when salvation arrived for you? When Jesus changed your life? It was the most joyful moment of your life, wasn't it? When Jesus changed everything within, within minutes and hours and days and months, you, you grew more and more joyful over what Christ was doing in your life. But if you're like most Christians, after a short season, discouragement set in as you considered the dryness of the land around you. The water moved through the land, but it left behind it pretty soon a wake of dryness that it almost would lead a person to forget that it ever happened. If you're a follower of Jesus this morning, I wonder if you've lost your zeal and your conviction that out of this gospel is a water of living of life, a water that flows, a river of living water that flows and bursts forth out of this truth of the gospel. Maybe you're a part of the second group this morning and you've chosen to reject Christ. Can I plead with you this morning that on this very day you would trust in Jesus as your Lord and Savior, that you would turn from all of your brokenness and all of your rebellion against God and you would trust in Christ. With every head bowed and every eye closed this morning. We want to extend to you an opportunity to do that. Maybe you would come this morning and you would bow before the Lord and you would ask Him. God, would you give me a renewed sense that you are still at work in the world around me. That you're still doing something amazing. That you're doing something for your glory and that it's changing lives. And that it is all happening through the gospel of Christ And you've placed your spirit in me to make that known. So God, would you renew me? Would you renew my conviction with proclaiming the gospel to the world around me? Maybe you need to come this morning and trust in Jesus as your Lord and Savior. And just a few moments as we stand, I want to invite you to come right where you're standing. Come out of the place where you are. Walk this aisle today, Pastor, I need to be saved. Whatever the case is, today we need to respond to God in obedience. Today, today as He's calling us. All across the room, would you stand with me? As we give honor to this time, I want to pray. Lord, would you have your way in our hearts this morning? God, help us with great conviction to proclaim the gospel 
because it is a wellspring of life to the world. I pray that, God, we would obey you with our hearts and our lives and all that we do and that you would be glorified. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You come this morning. This altar is open. You've been listening to the Southwide Baptist Church Podcast with Pastor Jeremy Lewis. For more information about our church, please visit www.southwidebaptist.com. We also invite you to connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram by searching for Southwide BC. Thank you for listening, and may you continue to worship, connect, grow, and multiply as you follow Jesus Christ. Thank you.